everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy at Genesee Community College. Stop for a moment, clear your mind, and concentrate on what I'm about to ask. What does it feel like to be you right now? I'll give you a couple seconds. This question builds on many conversations we've had before. What it means to be alive, to have a self, to be conscious. Nearly every topic we've ever talked about on this show is summoned by that simple question. And although few others may stop to think about what it feels like to be you, in your world, it is the singular most important thing in life. Today we're talking about emotions. So... We're probably opening up a new series here. Um, we don't really know how far we're going to get, you know, what what sort of things we're going to talk about in this episode. Mm. Um, but our plan, the way I kind of visualize it going is we're going to we're going to try to define emotions a little bit and talk about maybe um, where they came from or how they start um, and that sort of thing and maybe cover some of the basics. And then I really want to talk about um, you know, the, the boundaries of emotions in, in further episodes. And, um, cause that's, to me, that's what philosophy is about. We're pushing the boundaries. So, um, yes. so we'll get there, um, in, in some other episodes, we'll talk about some things, uh, you know, that may not even be considered emotions. And that's why we have to have the conversation first about what emotions are. Because um, one of the ones that I want to do, we might do it next, is uh, nostalgia. Because that's always seemed pretty, pretty cool to me, and you know, I think that it's something that is probably uniquely human. You know, um, and I was surprised when I started researching for it that it's not actually considered an emotion. No, it's 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 not. But that doesn't mean we can't say it. <laughs> right. All right. And so that's probably why some people coming into the show might think. Well, like you were saying beforehand, I know what emotions are. Like, I don't really need to, to listen to this. But then, you know, some people might hear that a nostalgia is not an emotion and think, well, what is it then? Or, well, okay, well, if, you know, maybe I don't know what an emotion is. So um, that's kind of what we'll, we'll go through is we'll jump right in and say, um, what are emotions? And let's start by saying, what are emotions physiologically? Now, this isn't so much a, a philosophical topic as... Um, maybe a, a, a medical or anatomical or psychological topic, but it still, it still is because, um, you know, you can use an fMRI or a PET scan to, um, see some things about emotions, but you, it still doesn't really tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what would you say emotions physiologically, what, what can we learn about them that way? Well, if, if we, I think if we look at the physiological then we're looking at um, tangible, measurable uh, responses to other states or to objects, which would include beings of any kind, um, or to other states would include memory, uh, responding to an old memory. So, does the heart rate go up? Does the blood pressure change? Uh, do we sweat? Do our eyes blink differently? Those kind of 
that would be the, the physiological. So you, yeah, you, you bring <clears throat> up something interesting there, which is, um, you know, I had a pretty similar definition, you know, it's kind of an electrochemical stimulus response, but I think what makes it interesting, this portion of the conversation is what the stimulus response is to, because, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where, when I doing some research, the definition among various parties kind of falls apart. Some, um, purely behaviorist, uh, people will say, well, it's a, it's a response to environmental cues, you know? Yes. So yes. there has to be something outside of you that triggers something within you in order to have a response in order to have an emotion. Well, is that Stanford article, the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy article, I, I love the phrase it's, it's that the behaviorists have an allergy to inner <laughs> mental states. Because yeah. That's, that's been true across my entire career. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So, so if, well, let's see. So we'll, we can talk about the example of that, the article it's uh, side note, Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy is just an amazing source. I use it with my students, and, I, and you and I have enjoyed just talking about it anyway. But but there's an example in that. So you come across a bear on a path as you're taking a, a walk. Now, you can have all kinds of response. Your, your, your mouth might pull back. Your eyes might open wide. Your jaw might drop. You're having a response to the shock of, of that creature being there and the potential danger it might pose. So the behaviors would get that one. Mm. Perhaps not so much the idea of I, I, I have a fond memory and I have the same response to that fond memory now as I did in the initial creation of the memory. Uh, but, it, but even so, I would still have a t perhaps a tangible physiological response. But the other part of that is that you can, there, not every emotion shows physically on right. the body. Mm -hmm. Some are more likely to than others. So I might be uh, saddened about something, but I'm not showing it. Right. So physiology can't measure everything. Yeah, or if you're playing if you're playing poker or something and you have a good hand, you know, people have tells which shows that there's mo emotion um you can't necessarily stop yourself from feeling it, but you can regulate response a little mm -hmm. bit. You good at poker, Joel? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> as good as anybody that gets lucky once in a while, but I, my luck tends to be not as good as some others. So, mm. um so yeah, that's that's the interesting part of the of sort of the definition of emotions and kind of what we're, we'll dive into a little bit is uh, an electric an electrochemical stimulus response. But to what does it have to be environmental? Um, can it be something that we've experienced in the past and are remembering? Um, so basically, you look at it. You look at the research that's been done, um, the empirical research, and you mm -hmm. see. FMRI, PET scans, you know, you can look at portions of the brain that light up when people um, feel certain emotions. Yeah. And, um, but we don't know why it's right. lighting up. Yeah, yeah. We <laughs> don't know why it's lighting up. And, you know, different emotions light up different areas. And their similarities don't have a whole lot to do with it either. So it's kind of an interesting, an interesting thing. 
Um, so let's move into the, the second part, which is going to be the more interesting part, which is what are emotions conceptually? So, mm-hmm. you know, going beyond what we can physically, empirically kind of say, now we're moving into the realm of subjectivity, which is something that is essential to emotions because people feel emotions only from their point of view. Now we're assuming that there's, um, you know, some consistency or some relatability among people in various emotions. Um, but really only, only a person can feel the emotion that they're feeling. They can only feel that, but sometimes one takes on the tonal color of the emotion that someone you're close to is feeling, whether that's an empathic thing. So somebody's angry that somebody did something to them and they tell you about it. And then you get angry too. It's your own angry response. It may not be absolutely like the response of the person's actually experienced the thing, but we, the food coloring in the water yeah, yeah. happens. Yeah, the way that I'm thinking about it is guitars, because huh. I'm a musician, you know, like, so everybody has the same brain structures, but they might be, you know, wired or a little bit different, or there might be some individual differences. Guitars are kind of the same way. Guitars all operate on the same principle. You know, you have tone pots and you have wires and you have pickups um, and output jacks and stuff, but every guitar sounds a little bit different. You can play in the same way. You can play a guitar aggressively and it's going to make an aggressive sound, but it depends on what the pickups are, what the wood is, what the wiring is. All those different things contribute to how, what kind of comes out. And your aggressive play, the angle at which you're uh, casting your hand across the the, the strings, the facial response that you're having to your own music. Um, Are you, are you standing? Are you swinging the the thing as you're moving? Are you actually moving on the the stage while you play all, all of those things? Yeah. Those are all different. Right. And so I think people are kind of the same way, the same, everybody has the same structures, but those individual differences kind of add up a little bit and you have different, um, sort of different responses or different, uh, properties to similar emotions. So as far as conceptually goes, it looks like in in the research, there's three kind of general approaches to the purpose of emotions. You have emotions as feeling and emotions as an evaluative tool and emotions as a motivational tool. So I think that a lot of people right off the bat would be like, well, it seems pretty obvious that emotions are for feeling, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, kind of what you find out as you go along is that, yeah, there's some portions of that that make sense, but there's some that it requires a little bit more. There's not really any that are, are real steadfast. And so in modern conceptions, there tend to be a lot of overlap between the three categories until mm-hmm. now it's sort of accepted that Emotions encompass all three aspects. Feelings of and evaluative kinds of things and motivations. Intentionality. You know, what is our intention toward an object? Mm. What does emotion, the, the, some of the questions that, that arise, does the emotion create our intention or is our response to the object then cast into an emotion 
Right. Yeah, that was the part of it that really was kind of crazy to me was, um, you know, talking about if committing a certain act gave you a certain emotion as opposed to vice versa. When, when I came to, to, to your, your house today, I, I told you I was trying to park out front. The, the simplest thing, and it took me four times to try to get my car so it wasn't going up on a curve. And I admit feeling a little annoyance with myself <laughs> on the third and particularly the fourth time. I even mumbled at myself a little bit and, and, and got out and checked it and said, well, it may be straying slightly into the driveway next door. And I hope that person was not upset. But, it's, it's, but it was the act of doing something more than once that I didn't feel like I ought to have to do more than once that created the emotion of annoyance. Mm-hmm. Or the or the response of annoyance. It's not that the curb. I saw the curb and said, "I'm annoyed." Right. <laughs> There's right. a curb there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why it's so different because because there are some things in which you can see uh, an object or a person, and immediately your your response may be based on past practice, maybe based on on what you've been trained to think, but it's not necessarily authentically or, or, or descriptively the same. Right. So, all right. So we've sent some, some kind of abstract, um, general things about emotion. Let's try to actually define uh, what an emotion is. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because you and I were talking before the show, there really is no consensus on what an emotion is, um, among professional researchers Mm -hmm. so that's nice because we can't be wrong but um there's an etymology (laughs) (laughs) right but that only takes us so far right and so the thing that's interesting about it and i think the thing that makes it really hard to define is that emotions can be short term or long term or um you know there's there's conscious or unconscious yeah there's a lot of variability between what they are and that's why it's sort of interesting to me when they start drawing boundaries about around what things are or aren't an emotion is because it's kind of like, well, you have a lot of, um, not contradictory, but highly contrasted criteria for what an emotion is. So how does something fall within or, or outside of that boundary? So Start, start with definitions. Okay. Right. How, and how, let's blow them apart. Right. Okay. So we've talked about it physiologically. We've kind of come to a definition. And conceptually, we've talked about what the purposes of it are. And that's about as far as we've gotten. And I'm not, I'm not sure where to go from that point as far as a definition for emotions. Well, if we, if we look at the old Latin, then it means outmove. Uh, something that is perceptive perceptible. Uh, The 13th, 14th, 15th century French riff off the Latin was to stir up or to agitate. So uh, an emotion at that time was related to rebellion. We're just talking about Star Wars. (laughs) So something that stirs up, something that agitates, something that is undisciplined. And then now we have, you know, this blurry, well, it's a feeling. And we have how many songs? 
Right. That are, I, think, <laughs> I, I, I can think of a few, not titles, but you know, lines that go through the head. So it's all very vague, but it's all somehow, it's like the silly putty of feeling uh, gloms onto every other thing that may be in, peripherally related to emotion. So yeah, we've got a lot of openness we can work with here. Right. So I think that, let's start out with this. This is kind of the question I'm thinking of. Is emotion sort of a, is it a, a sensory perception or is it the amalgamation of all sensory perceptions? Oh, and we have to say both because, <laughs> <laughs> because philosophically, there is the specific response to the specific situation or object, but then there's the larger overall uh, generalized category. So fear. Mm. Fear would be the second part of what you just said, an amalgamation. But we know that there are specific kinds of fears. And like the bear on the path, which might not cause everybody fear. Mm -hmm. With me, but that's <laughs> um, but but that's only one kind of fear. So the current research is suggesting that emotions are categories, and then within those categories, there is perhaps an almost infinite variety of emotions. Right. So it's kind of like, um, and I think I saw this somewhere when I was reading, it's sort of like mixing colors. Hmm. You have certain primary colors in terms of positive or negative or um, energetic or relaxed. And then as you mix them together, you get different, different emotions and different shades of, of feeling and stuff. <laughs> so it's it's really rough. It's been a lot harder to define um, the essence of emotion than it has been to find the essence of some of the other topics that we've discussed so far. So I think that we'll yeah. move on, and I think that as we move on and discuss some of the other stuff, we'll continue to sort of get at the essence of what emotions okay. are. But we'll move into the formative. Um, why do we have emotions? What's the what's the purpose or value of having emotions? Let's start with the simplest one. I think the behaviors would go here. So let's all right. Uh, self preservation. Right. <clears throat> and that's the first one that pops to mind because we have a whole anatomical brain structure that is devoted to that and it's probably the first emotion that was ever developed. That that fear emotion and the amygdala. Um I mean if you look at the the structure of the brain. The amygdala is actually um, sort of the uh, the kill switch for the brain. It overrides everything. Everything mm -hmm. runs through there first because if the amygdala senses something that's dangerous, I think it's actually the only section of the brain that can send an outward response before the signal gets to the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if you are experiencing something before you even have a chance to understand what it is, you can actually take action to preserve yourself. Yeah. Which is it's why if somebody's scared, they will jump back or punch or something or do something before they even know what's happening. Because if they know what was happening, if, if we let the signal get all the way to the prefrontal cortex, it would be impossible to scare somebody. Mm. 
because somebody would jump out and then your brain would say, oh, that's your friend hiding behind the door and you wouldn't, you wouldn't react at all. Yeah. But because of your amygdala, somebody jumps out and all your brain says is movement, quick, near right. me, shake, trouble. Movement, yes. Trouble. And yeah, then yeah. it says, you know, get Danger, away. Danger, Will yes. Robinson. Yes. <laughs> Protect yourself. So, um, so fear is probably the, the first emotion and it's centered around self-preservation. And that's a, that's a pretty understandable and unassailable kind of um, kind of thing to look at. Yeah. So that, that explains fear. Why do we have these other emotions? What, what's purpose to these other emotions serve? Well, this is where you look to the, there's a study that I've been referencing that says that there are 27 emotions and some of the most basic ones aren't even on it. So that, that hate is not, a true emotion. Hate is a mask for the emotion of fear. Hmm. So it's suggesting that, so, so I'm just going to go with the mask thing. Some things that we think of are, uh, as emotions, if we start thinking about, as you're just described, why we have that immediate response, we, 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 we've created, perhaps not intentionally, a mask that we put over the real response, because we don't want to say that we're afraid. We want to say that we hate or whatever, choose your emotion for the mask. But what lies underneath it is why, is why we are interested in looking at it. So, so joy, you know, why, why do we have that? Well, physiologically, it's really good for us to, uh, measurably, again, to uh, a state of joy uh, tends to uh, make one healthier mm -hmm. you can't have a constant state of joy either but it but it, so that it has that use i'm not always you know this about me I, i'm not always at first interested in the immediate use of, of something that's an engineering viewpoint <laughs> right right um and i know it's it's and i'm not denying the, the legitimacy of it um but i don't necessarily need to know the use of joy to know that joy is something one wants to experience so why do we want to experience a lot does it make is it just endorphinal mm -hmm. <laughs> or or is it that it's more of a spiritual state of being is it is it is it a physiological and mystical thing and right and that's that's what I want to get to in the episodes following this yeah, one is yeah. really that mystical sort of feel. That's why I want to go into some of these ones that are sort of uniquely human, because I think that that's the part of it that's appealing to me as well is trying to find out these, these strange feelings and these things that sort of transcend the bioengineered evolutionary definition of humanity. I want to figure out, I want to, dive into those a little bit more yeah. but in order to get there i think that we do have we to go, go back through to some this. of this okay so, so ask so, a different question or, well or, I'll, I'll go off it a little bit so okay. we, we look at fear and it, fear makes sense why we have fear and then we look at something like joy and that's it's funny because that's a little bit less self-explanatory like you said joy is very beneficial for us physiologically okay but there's not really if you look at evolutionary or um from a biomechanical viewpoint it's kind of like well why is there joy and if you're looking in, in like the animal kingdom and you you look for joy 
kind of the place that I think you find it is with play. So I'm wondering if it's sort of a vis, uh, you know, vestigial, yeah, vestigial um, aspect of youth. You know, you play in order to learn things about the world and in order to um, develop neural circuitry that teaches you how to be an adult. Which, and then which as then, an adult, as, you know, as an adult, you can continue to play. Right. And I think that maybe that's where joy kind of maybe it comes fits in there. Okay. How about, let's go to a simpler one. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, not simpler. More, more, less, less mystical. Sympathy. Okay. What's the use of sympathy? If we were to talk about use, why? Because Dawkins and so many people have written about the, you know, the evolution of altruism. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sympathy, I think, would be, you know, you're to strengthen social bonds. So let's say elephants are notoriously known to experience sympathy and grief. And I think that they both serve similar purposes. If you have sympathy and grief, it makes you much more likely to go to greater lengths to preserve your social group. Hmm. So if your group is under attack from lions, if you don't feel sympathy or grief, you're much more likely to just run from the lions and hope you're not the slowest elephant. <laughs> but if you feel sympathy or grief or some of these other emotions, you're more likely to turn and, you know, form a protective barrier around your young to use your tusks and your thing you know, to, as, as a defense. Mm -hmm. And as a result, preserve your social group. And what's good for the group is good for the individual in the case of survival. So I think that there, that would be my guess. Sympathy and survival probably would develop as um, a social preservation instinct. So if you're a social animal, um, sympathy and grief kind of grow out of that, those social bonds. That'd be my guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. So sympathy has a social use. Sympathy has a political use because it has a social use. I'm just referencing back to other things we were mm -hmm. talking about. Sympathy, you mentioned at the beginning about identity, and maybe that's what we should tag this to is the, the, your opening uh, itself in, in which you said, why, what makes me me, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. What makes each of us who we are? So, well, yeah, what is the role of emotion in making us who we are? And so then more specifically, in this case, what is the role of sympathy in making us who we are? And and you asked that question and allowed some silence because we don't know what every single person feels was sympathetic or not to the degree that they are. But we know that it exists. Right. Yeah. And, and beyond that, I think what I was trying to accomplish and what, what I feel when I ask that question is, you realize that just how important emotions are because you're always feeling emotions. Like I think one of the biggest travesties of 20th century scientific thought was trying to isolate emotion from rationality because I think cognitive and emotional elements are inextricably intertwined. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say that you should let emotion guide decisions in, you know, areas that of, of research and stuff, but I don't think you can operate under the facade that you can ever separate them either. Um, no, there needs so, to be a balance. Right. And so if I sit here and just think, what does it feel like to be me right now? There's not a emotion that I can 
identify using language, but there's, I, I feel something, mm-hmm. you know, and it's probably a mixture of several things. And it has to do with, you know, what my views on myself are and my self-esteem or self-confidence or my, you know, the other, how, what sort of stressors are sort of playing in the background of my mind subconsciously that I experience outside or what sort of enjoyment I'm getting from other areas. There's a whole mix of things that sure. contribute to what it means to feel like me. And, you know, the, the Stanford, um, the Stanford encyclopedia there, it's opening line talks about how emotions are what make life worth living. And in some cases worth, worth taking, taking, you know, and that explains why it's the most important thing in your life is because although there's so many other things, you know, that, that are perceived to have meaning, really the only thing that means anything is what it feels like to be you. And, you can look, you know, you see, you know, recent pop culture is littered with examples of people who appeared to have all of those other things that still mm-hmm. ended up killing themselves. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, you look at third world countries and you see people who have nothing but still appear to have a very vigorous enjoyment of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes back to what it feels like to be you and how you're interpreting you know, some of it is that, like we like we were talking about, this comes back to those definitions. Is it interpreting environmental stimulus, your your electrochemical response to those environmental <laughs> stimulus, or is it interpreting past experiences, or is it something that you're, you know, is it an evolutionary aspect of something that you're, or it, you know, it's it, it's all of those things. Right. It's, it's a state of mind. It's also a, an intuitional state. But the commonality in all of it, I think, I'm just with listening to you talk, is this goes back to our much earlier talk about identity. One could argue that we don't have an identity without our relationships, whatever those are, however complicated those are. So usually when we're uh, assessing uh, in any given moment, we're reflecting on, well, how are we, how am I? Well, how am I is in this, in, inextricably bound up in how are the people that I care about around me? How, how am I depends on how they are and what I'm, how I'm responding to them in part, but not entirely. Um, because otherwise you're just a reflection of everybody else and, and not a, an individual self. But what you do choose is important in the relationships. And I, I, almost any emotion you can name, I would think, can't be take, divided from the word relationship. Whether it's a relationship to an object, a relationship to a person, a relationship to a memory, a relationship to an inner state that may have been caused. But that even that inner state partly is caused by something that we have perceived, even if it didn't necessarily happen, but we've, we've perceived it. Right. So, and I, I'm thinking that I agree with you there. It, there has to be a relationship, but that gets us back to our behaviorist definition of emotion because mm-hmm. they're claiming that there has to be, um, you know, some stimulus that we're responding to and a relationship would also imply that there has to be something outside of us that we're responding to. Oh, but we can create relationships inside ourselves that we don't even, that has almost nothing to do. 
with that external input. And, right. And that's what can get out of balance or, or uh, maybe that's not the right phrase, but sure, we can respond first. We, we, let's just go with this. We know that if an act happens, we've witnessed something. And you ask any police officer to report, uh, to take the report on what somebody saw. As simple as what happened on that street corner. Mm. Did I back up four times? Did I back up three times? Was my car blue? Was my car red? I think he had a blue car, actually. No, but it was red. And, <laughs> and, and he got out and he hit the car. Well, I didn't. But inside, I felt like I to <laughs> my So... So we have such not necessarily trustworthy responses to external stimuli. That's compounded by how we interpret something ex externally and then put it in our in our heads. I mean, think about. I won't. I won't tease high schoolers because we've all been there. But any of us, though, someone smiles. And on our heads, we're going, what does that mean? Yeah. Right. Were they mocking me? Did they have a crush on me? Were they just being friendly? Were they... You Do could, they have a purpose? Right. right. Is it, what's the reason? Were they smiling for? somebody behind me? Well, you know, like, it could be any number of... <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. So so I think there is, there is relationship, but I think yeah. that overriding the relationship aspect of it is the interpretive aspect of it. Mm -hmm. What sort of meaning mm -hmm. we're giving to the idea of... Um, the relationship. And this so, is the language part. Right. So that, that leads me perfectly into the, the next formative question that I had was, is language essential to emotion? Mm. Um, so do you need language to have emotion? Because this has very big implications um, for the animal kingdom and for the artificial intelligence. It does. You need language to describe an emotion. You need language to probe an emotion. You need language of some kind, whether it's art, the language of art. Or the, you can have the nascent, immediate, whatever it is, but if you can't so, say whatever it is, then... Let me ask this. I'm interested in what your response would be. So, would you say this is a true statement? That artificial intelligence has language, but no emotion, and animals have emotion, but not necessarily language. That's really interesting. On the surface of it, yeah, I, I think I would. Because we know that some animals have language, but there's probably some that don't have language. Well, or, or a language of a kind. I mean, it means we have to decide what we're talking about. Do we mean a, a, a complex grammatical structure of signifiers? Right. <laughs> that's, you know, that's often what we, our language, what we refer to as language. Birdsong. Right. Birdsongs. They, you know, we, we seem to know ornithologists uh, seem to discern that certain sounds mean certain things within a range. Well, that's kind of a signifier. Right. And I guess that, so let's, let's not say language so much as um, communication. Pretty much all animals have a communication, yeah. I suppose. Um, Does artificial intelligence have a communication? I like your question. So it's artificial intelligence uses language because it's algorithmically what we, whatever artificial intelligence we have now, which is not real in, intelligence yet, we're not at the science fictional as far as we know yet. 
but we're getting toward it. So mm. when a, if a machine achieves consciousness, then it uses language purposefully independent of the uh, expected. So if a machine can... Uh, if a machine can free associate, if you say to a machine, uh, say the first thing that comes to mind, we get to the point where we can say that to a machine, uh, and we say, checkered, and the machine responds with something we, we wouldn't have expected. Mm. If we can tr trust and we think we know that the machine is truly being free associational, that's... Yeah, and you'll love an article that I'm going to send you when we're done here because <laughs> they just did a. They're they're doing things now. Really, over the past couple of months, I've just started to see it where they're taking um, silver nano wires and starting to pulse them with electricity, and they're starting to grow into what resembles neural networks. Mm -hmm. And then they're watching them under the fMRI scanners, kind of replicate brain areas mm. and these mm. sorts of things. Yeah, I want to read this. So yeah, I'll, I'll send you the one that I just read yesterday. Um, but I took us way off the track, so let's go back to the question again. Right, so essentially we're trying to figure out if language or communication is essential to emotion. Do you have to have, do you have to be able to communicate in order to have an emotion? Not, not externally. But I would say our bodies are communicating with our minds as you just said with the amygdala. Even if it's if if a, a giant shape suddenly emerges in front of us, we go ah. Right. <laughs> okay, there has been a communication of the most fundamental primal kind, but my brain doesn't have to use language to describe all that. So that brings up a real interesting question, which is: so does that make is this sort of uh, um, an evidence for mind-body duality? <laughs> are we looking at so are we separating oh, the body the from the mind now? <laughs> you see this is what i this is why i wanted to get into emotion is because i love this idea of you know what it means to be human and what you know not so much what yes there's survival aspects to emotion and then there's social aspects to emotion but there's something more maybe and the entire conceptualization of mysticism mm -hmm. That to me seems uniquely human and kind of, I think that that might be part of what emotion is about mm. and trying to figure out why that exists. If it grew out of a survival or social mechanism, that gap is where I'm, what I'm really interested in, mm. you know, mm -hmm. because we can look at sympathy or empathy or fear you know, we can look at basic emotions or more complex emotions and kind of trace the trail back. But when we get to some of the ones we'll talk about in the next few episodes, it's going to get a lot murkier yes, about <laughs> what is the, what is, if I were to try to find an evolutionary purpose for this, what would it be? You know, mm -hmm. um, which is what the cognitive evolutionists are looking at right now. So we're in really prime current right. territory as lay people. We're, right. <laughs> this is, we're, we're on the cutting edge. So, yeah, we're, we're going from the formative into the speculative now. Um, and again, you know, looking at the formative, I think that we, we discovered some things. You know, I think that the first and second tier emotions, I don't think we have a big problem tracing the purpose of them, you know, or at least speculating on why these sorts of things would develop. Once we get beyond that second tier, you know, once we go from 
primary to secondary. Now, if we're into tertiary colors, you know, if you're into aquamarine emotions, <laughs> now you're like, well, why? What's the purpose of that? Mm. So we're heading into the speculative a bit. Um, so do you think of emotions? Do you think emotions will evolve in the future? Because yeah. think about it. it. If we're thinking about it from an evolutionary viewpoint, emotions probably have become more complex with the evolution of human beings. It probably started with fear for survival purposes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah that's a good predication. I go with that. But it's absolutely because because it's clear as clear as it can possibly be that evolution works. <laughs> that it uh, it is an established. It's it's beyond theory. It's 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 established practice on a. On a at a possibly huge level. And so uh, just as glaciers move and recede and, and, well, things change. And so how we feel, I, I don't think we've been around long enough to really notice a whole lot of evolution in what we term a human being yet. If we've been around for... Let's be really wide and say, well, what's discernibly human may have been around for the past 200,000 years. Blip, less than mm -hmm. a blip on a stopwatch. So we're going to have to wait until see if there's anything human in 4 million years. <laughs> right. Before well, we really know how that would evolve. And I think that this is where language helps us out a little bit too, is because um, language has progressed very quickly and i think mm -hmm. that that gives us a little bit of insight into it and even the word emotion itself you look at the etymology before 1830 nobody felt emotions they felt passions or these other things but the emotions, word emotion wasn't applied yeah, to yeah, yeah 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 and so that's kind of a unique example in itself of you know um so before our great great grandfathers depending on the longevities within families, but let's say three or four grades, the word wasn't being used. Right. And so <laughs> I think that the interesting question for uh, a lingual philosopher would be, well, if the word wasn't being used, was the actual emotion also not being felt the same way? Because the word emotion probably connotates something much different than a passion or something else. And so... Again, we're getting back to that idea of what is the link between language and the felt emotion? Precision, you know, right? A degrees of precision, not not absolute precision. That that would be just. I know you you were kind of I, I intruded on your rhetorical question, but there goes boom precision. That's, <laughs> but, but that's really what language is about, and precision not as in a mechanistic precision, exclusively, but. I mean, think about poetry, which is the realm of so much emotion. Uh, the metaphors, uh, analogies, uh, and so on are an attempt to render precisely, um, relatably, sometimes, although not always, the experience of X emotion within an individual writer or painter. And thus, we learn that certain colors are somehow associated with certain states of of emotional being. Yeah. So, 
and I think that I think that that's right. I think that each and that gets us into so we've lost a huge percentage of words since the 1950s. There's lots of words that are falling out of use, and, um, and languages that are going extinct. Right, and <sighs> different words that are being develops every day in common usage and slang and stuff. So do you think that that change in language is going to change the emotions that people feel? Or do you think that it's just going to be relabeled under a different name? Do you think that we're still feeling the same things as those people from the 1830s? Or do you think that because the the change in language and the change in description, do you think we're feeling something different if we're using different language? Oh, you ask such good questions. I want you to answer the question too, but I'll go, I'll start since you asked. I think the language helps us find nuances in, in emotions. The passion can mean many things, but if you subdivide it, it can, it, okay. So if language can help us see nuances in emotions, then it's entirely possible that we could say that we're not feeling the same exact thing that somebody a hundred thousand years ago felt. On the other hand, I think that's where the foundational stuff comes in. Yeah. I mean, look at love and the idea of chivalrous love, which only emerged out of a whole stylistic uh, form in France and England and, and so on at a certain period of time. And before that, that wasn't, Prominent. So, yes, I think we probably can feel the nuances of different things. And as the transhumanist movement continues, and not movement as in a rebellion or something, but movement as, 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 as we keep enhancing ourselves we are undoubtedly going to have new states of emotional experience that we can't imagine now. If, if we were actually interactive with a computer in our minds, we don't know what that feels like now. Mm-hmm. But presumably in the next 30 years or so, we're going to, some of right. us. I think it would be an interesting... You and I should do a white paper study on... We should develop a list of words with... Um, you know what we consider to have synonymous emotional meanings and then look at people under under uh different scanners and see which parts of their brains light up well that sounds really fast see (laughs) if the same parts of the brains light up then uh maybe people are just experiencing the same emotion with a different name but if you have different sections lighting up then it's probably people are feeling different things based off of different words okay but i'm going to take that one step further just because something lights up in the brain and i know they're colors right Right. We're ever more precise about our colors. So red is not uniformly red. So what if it's more crimson? What, <laughs> what, what if it's... <laughs> and that's where, it gets, that's where it gets really crazy, you know, is because we don't have the ability to look at individual neurons or synapses or that sort of things. And that's, I mean, I think that's what brain growth is. That's what, you know, the communications are. It's different things connecting to different pieces. And really, I think the shades are going to be too imperceptible for modern tools to sort of um, coax okay. out. Uh, I, and I could go with that, but I'm gonna, there's a pop cultural uh, test that we can use. 
Have you ever looked at a sheet of emojis on a on a screen? Yeah. Emoticons, yeah. emojis. Have you ever run into one you didn't know what it represented? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then then all the emotions uh, we people have different emotions or represent emotions differently, even as something as sim- seemingly simplistic as as an emoji, which really isn't, uh, which can cause great consternation among people if they receive you know an emoji in, in a text and. And they say, oh, that person likes me when the person's really saying, I'm just laughing at a joke. Right. right? And yeah. So it's not universal. We think representing a face, this, and that's why we go back to where we, part of what we started out with, just our facial responses to, is not enough of an indicator to precisely talk about what emotion we're feeling. Right. And so this brings us all the way back to the beginning where um, – Again, I think that, and it, it draws on self and free will and identity and all of the things we've talked about before. But I think that people like to think that they feel an emotion and then they take an action. But there's there's actual science to show that it does work in reverse. Having good posture can cause you to be more confident. Yes. You can feel emotions based off of taking an action. This is what yoga is about, partly. Right. So it is, there's definitely a two-way street of some kind. Mm-hmm. There's things um, from the outside or things from the inside that cause us to feel a certain way. And then there's feelings that cause us to take certain actions. Um, so really, I mean, it's where are we from where we started, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, I think we've used a machete and, and, and opened up a, a clearing. Uh, that that's uh, okay. Yeah, we we we're back at the beginning, but we're not exactly back at the beginning uh, because we've established some vocabulary and and have have established that there's a lot of open territory to be discussed. But mostly, most importantly, we've established that this is worth discussing because we don't know <laughs> very much yet. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, people who start at the beginning and thought, I know what an emotion is. If you've listened to us for the past 50 minutes, you've probably started to question whether or not you actually know what an emotion is. I hope so, because I still have no idea. <laughs> but so, we, you know, we're, we're talking about emotions and how we can kind of mix them and how we have, I, I think that it's pretty much accepted that there's basic emotions and then there's other emotions that stem from them yeah there may be categories that individuals emotions fall into larger kinds of categories there may be a basic emotion that then becomes much more complicated all right and so i think that that's going to be very important for the next few episodes that we do because the the emotions that we'll talk about in the future here aren't going to be basic emotions they're going to be Again, those sort of mystical things that kind of what I what I think makes humans human. Mm-hmm. What separates a human from an elephant or from an artificial intelligence? Something that we sort of uniquely feel. And I think that a big task in talking about those emotions is going to be tracing them back to what the primary emotion is. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. if we if we talk about nostalgia, what primary emotion does that stem from? And that might get a little bit 
a little bit tricky, you know, because it, it, it undoubtedly will. But I want I want you to know that nostalgia actually is one of the twenty seven emotions, oh, really? emotional categories that the more recent study and that's out. and that's why you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, there's there's not any consensus on what is and isn't an emotion. There's a lot of debate among um, professionals mm-hmm. who are looking at the thing because. You know, some of them are saying, well, that's an emotion. Well, no, it's a sentimentality or <laughs> it's a, it's a feeling. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, there is a distinction between feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, or moods, feelings, moods, emotions. These are all things that, um, professionals draw distinctions among. Whereas if you're a person subjectively experiencing those things, you don't stop to think, about that you know and when you do <laughs> then you realize that the world is a lot more complicated than you ever wanted yeah. it to be <laughs> yeah if, if i'm in a good mood you know i think that it would i'd almost default to saying oh well i'm just experiencing positive emotions so it would almost seem like the same thing but it's it's not the case mm. there's <laughs> there's a lot more to it so yeah, in the future, um, in future episodes here, we're going to get into some um, some different emotions, and I think that a lot of that, a lot of those conversations will draw on the conversation we had today. But I think also a lot of them are going to draw on the conversations we've had in the past, the same way this one has, yeah. especially talking about um, you know things that are so complex, you know. Um, <laughs> So I think it's it's going to be it's going to be really be fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you for listening and until next time, keep pondering.